what was the incentive to release a series of albums like this? Uh, we're approaching the 40th anniversary of the programme. It began in September 1971. So um, this is part of a gradual sort of lead-up to that anniversary. Um, you know, we're hoping to mark the anniversary in several different ways and releasing material of um, you know, music that we featured on the programme is a kind of precursor to that. Now, what about the track selection? Because it must be so difficult. And I, I can understand, really, for the first uh, album that's been released, um, you know, it's a fair cross-section and a, a good flavour of what the programme was all about. But um, w one observation people will make about this is there's no actual, apart from two tracks, there aren't any uh, actual whistle test sessions. Was there a reason for that? Yes, there are quite a few reasons, actually, the most obvious being clearances. Yes. Um, I mean, in theory, yes, we're hoping that, you know, as the series progresses, we'll delve deeper and deeper into the archive. That is one thing we really do want to do. But for Rhino, in the first instance, they wanted to sort of assess the reaction to the first album. It was very important that this album performed well, and it has done. It reached number two in the charts, which is great. You know, we're all really pleased with the way it's done. Uh, but as you can imagine, we're talking about appearances that took place on the program 35 or 40 years ago, and um, contractually releasing that material to be used on a compilation is complex and or expensive, depending upon you know which way. It, so obviously, there is material that we can just grab and release, and we've done that with the Al Stewart and with the Patti Smith tracks that are on the album, but some of the other material is much more complicated than that. So we wanted to be absolutely sure that there's a platform onto which we can step, if you know what I mean, that the, the reaction to the album's been good, that there's a good market out there for the future possibilities, um, and then that will sort of prize open more the possibility of, of following this album with more archive material in subsequent releases. So that's the sort of theory behind it all. You'll be heavily involved in this, will you, Bob? Uh... Yes. I mean, initially, I, 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 we talked to BBC Worldwide about six or seven months ago just to sort of let them know that the anniversary is coming up next year. And um, so the idea of doing this first album the initiative sort of came really from BBC Worldwide and then Rhino, who the two of them joined forces. They then put together a running order which they sent me and which I sort of messed with basically. I took out things that I didn't think were quite appropriate, put in things that were. Uh, so we evolved the running order between us and then I wrote the Steve notes and like that. I mean, I'm really... I'm really pleased with the album, actually. I, I love the way it looks. I love the atmosphere of it. I mean, just when you sort of dispassionately listen to it and put it on, I mean, it's a fantastic collection. So I'm really, really pleased. Get ready to rock radio. I, I presume that explains why this hasn't been done up to now. Yes. Uh, obviously, we've put the DVDs out. Yes. Um, and that whole series is very comprehensive and explores a good part of what still exists of the Whistle Test archive. Um, so the DVDs were, were a very important aspect of all of this. And now, 
obviously then um, we're hoping that this time round, as of sort of leading up to this time next year, we'll be able to put out a collection of some of the, the great session stuff. That's the ambition. So we will see how that goes administratively. I mean, you can imagine that the licensing and the clearances, it, it, you know, in some respects, it's actually difficult now with some of the bands and some of the clearances to even establish who owns the rights to them. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, yeah. if you can't establish that, you can't use them. So... There we are. That's, yeah. that's a bit of a minefield, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Now, interestingly, I think uh, I'm right in saying that the two live tracks on this compilation, they're in mono. Was that always um, a problem, actually, in the 70s, because the, the audio track was in mono, or is that you know just the way it's been mixed? Or, um, or is that typical, basically, of the... Yeah, at that moment, it is. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, it is, because the, the exceptions to that at the time were whatever... Um, uh, sort of co-broadcasts we did with Radio 1 because I was doing my Sounds of the 70s programs on Radio 1 in the early 70s and um, we did do some simulcasts. There were a few, Van Morrison and the Rainbow being one of the sort of famous ones. Um, so those would have been mixed in stereo because they were going to be broadcast in stereo. But at the time, when you think of the technology that existed, there wasn't stereo television so a lot of the mixes were simply done in mono mix yeah get ready to rock radio music you want to hear now when did you realize bob that you were really getting a, a big audience for the whistle test i mean you started uh, september 72 uh, was there one particular program or specific feedback that made you feel that you'd finally arrived really focus ah. in a word <laughs> yeah um because when they appeared on the program the reaction was just it took us all by surprise mm. Um, I mean, the, bearing in mind that the audience, when I first started, it wasn't huge at all for the program, but it built, it was a word of mouth thing. It had a real, it became a real sort of uh, cult program. It developed an amazing sort of reputation for integrity and all of that. And this was, was happening very much kind of under the radar, but the moment that it sort of burst out into into the light, as it were, was after uh, Focus appeared on the show, because their rea the reaction to them was just incredible. It really, really was. Uh, they were on Polydor at the time, and the demand for, because I think they've got both, they've got two albums out at that time. They're Moving Waves had just been released. Hocus Pocus had been out for quite a while as a single. Sylvia had just been released. And all of them just slammed into the chart the following week. And somebody from the Polydor factory told us that for about 10 days, they devoted almost all of the facilities at the pressing factory to meeting the demand. So suddenly we realized that, but wow, <laughs> there must be some people watching this program. It was incredible, actually. It was a fantastic feeling. Get ready to rock radio. Music you want to hear. Now, we should say to listeners who uh, are the a younger age, really, that a uh, whistle test was groundbreaking in its own way with the use of film, and, and this was pre-MTV, of course, in the 80s. You may mention the sleeve notes to this release. You know, there were no mobile phones. It was a different age. And, and really, you, you were fostering, you know, a real love of rock music to people, of, again, of a certain age, really, probably my generation, Bob, and a bit younger. Did you stay in the, the same studio for, for the duration? Because it always looked a bit cramped to me. And I um, when I first 
started on with the test, we were in a tiny little presentation studio behind the lift shaft and the fourth floor <laughs> of the television center. And we were there probably for my first sort of 12 to 18 months. But then uh, we moved down to, uh, well, basically top of the pop studio, TC5. And that was huge. That was, that was sort of half a hangar sort of uh, size. It was, and with that, of course, then came much more in the way of mixing facilities, uh, microphone points, uh, bigger mixer, more channels, uh, bigger facilities altogether. Yeah. So once we got down to TC5, then that opened things out completely, and uh, we could have a complete sort of full-band lineup up to more or less any size. Plus, the acoustic artist would be, you know, we'd usually have a band and the acoustic, that would be the way that things broke down. And, um, yeah, so to start with, it was cramped. You're right. It was tiny, that studio. <laughs> I mean, sometimes when the bands were in, the cameras would be actually out in the corridor, um, outside the door, pointing inwards because there was so little space. Um, there wasn't much in the way of budget either for the program, which was something that actually eventually very much worked to our advantage because we didn't dress the studio. There wasn't uh, money in the budget to create a fantastic studio set. So we just went in there, pulled a few lights down, put a few colors up <laughs> put the, with the test logo, um, and that was about it. And, of course, that then created an amazingly distinctive look. It did, but actually, Bob, don't you think it created quite a distinctive atmosphere for yes, them? You know what I mean? Uh, How good was that sort of spontaneity? Yeah. No pretense is. at all. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, fantastic, really. Although, I suppose, on reflection, you know, we were talking about getting... Um, you know, licensing sorted out for some of the, the live sessions. I mean, no doubt bands will look back and say, well, actually, that wasn't a particularly good performance. I suppose you're also up against that, aren't you, really? Um, rarely, though, to be honest. Oh, that's good. Um, you know, most of the, the bands were so... We, we had a really lovely atmosphere about the program. That was the other aspect of it. You know, we're, we're all... Everybody involved with the program, we're all music fans. All the cameramen... In those days, you could sort of pick and choose a bit as a cameraman or sound mixer or whatever the programs that you worked on. So all the people that were into music, rock music, sort of volunteered to work on the show. So the cameraman, the sound mixer, the floor manager, you know, the production staff, all of us, we were all music fans. So the bands were coming into a very kind of soft landing. They were coming into an atmosphere that really was geared to make them, you know, feel relaxed and give their best. Mm. So I think a lot of the bands really recognized that, and there was a looseness and a lovely atmosphere that they responded to. So I doubt, I think now that you listen now, having said that, the one thing I will say, the caveat is is that... um, Particularly in Pres B, there wasn't, there weren't the facilities to get a really fantastic sound. And you do listen to some of the mixes now of some of those performances. And bearing in mind they were analog, recorded onto reel to reel, you didn't have necessarily the Dolby, you know, sound reduction, all of that. They're very hissy. Some of them, <laughs> yeah, the quality isn't absolutely fantastic. But hey, yeah, it's live television. So yes, it's never yes. going to be absolutely perfect. No. And did bands get much rehearsal time before the before the 
live session? I mean, was it very much of its moment, or did you allow them some preparation? Oh yeah, well, yeah. It, well it, we, you know, we would we it was all day. We'd, we'd convene about ten thirty in the morning, but then the the sound checks um, in the afternoon. We'd do a full run through early evening, then take a short break, and then do the program live. Programmed by enthusiasts, not accountants. This is Get Ready to Rock Radio. The radio sessions are perhaps slightly different in that, in that, you know, a lot of them were done at, at Made of Vale, where you've got, you've got there, almost Made of Vale, you could almost call it the BBC equivalent of Abbey Road. You know, you've got fantastic facilities there, big studios, uh, mega channel mixing desks. It's still the same now. And you'd have, you know, you'd probably start a session at midday or something, and quite often it would be open-ended and wouldn't necessarily finish until the early hours of the following morning, huh. uh, where you're recording four or five songs and you're creating, um, you know, uh, a recording that would match almost anything that they'd done on album. In fact, I think now you listen back to some of the BBC sessions from those days, and you can make a big case out in some cases for the, the sessions that actually sound as good, if not better, than, than the album track. I agree with you. One, yeah. one of the examples that I always give is, is Heartbreaker by Led Zeppelin. There's an energy to but you know, this is You'll find it on their BBC Sessions release of a couple of years ago. And it's fantastic. If anything, you know, I honestly think it matches the album version. I really do. So yeah. you've got that, that time expertise and you've got the facilities there inevitably with the television program you're creating a recording of a performance within a context because obviously you're dealing with a whole show which is going out live you've got a therefore relatively limited time to get everything right on the session so it's not although it's comparable definitely there was an advantage of having that amount of time and having the great uh all those great facilities that made available for the sound recordings. The best new, classic and slightly obscure rock tracks. Get ready to rock radio. So much to talk about in terms of the whistle test, but you, you've obviously you've interviewed, not just for the whistle test, um, but as part of your career really, Bob, you've uh, been interviewing a whole range of t- top-notch, top-name artists. Some are obviously no longer with us now, but do you still adhere to the maxim that you shouldn't really meet your idols? No, I don't. Um, <laughs> it's like with everything. The fact that somebody's got a nice voice or can play brilliant guitar doesn't mean that they're an all-round fantastic person. They're just like everybody else. You know, some musicians are great to spend time with. Some are grumpy. Some are friendly. Some are warm. Some are just you know. It's just that's the way it is. So there are times when you're hoping that the atmosphere of the person matches the atmosphere of the music, particularly you're looking at sort of the more gentle, perhaps mellow artists, you know, albums that you're listening to that you're hoping the artist will be sort of similar. <laughs> but it doesn't always work out that way. But then again, I've built up some really close friendships with people that I met in those days that are still in my life, you know, um, one of my best friends is Robert Plant. I mean, our friendship has grown gradually through the years, and he and I now spend time together in Nashville, where he spends a lot of time. 
I mean, the Rosing Sand album, and he's got a new album coming out that was recorded there with Buddy Miller. So, you know, Robert, um, Brian May and I are good friends. Do you know what I mean? I mean, mm. you meet people and you become friends or you don't. Uh, and that isn't de- necessarily determined by whether they're a great musician or not. The music of the night. Radio one From midnight to morning, Bob Harris on 1FM. Focusing just a little bit now on your radio career, um, I mean, I really enjoyed your show in the early 90s, 1990s. You were on Radio 1 on the midnight session. Um, and, of course, you're now doing a similar time slot on Radio 2 on Sunday mornings. Uh, now, these, um, well, certainly the, the program in the 1990s was, was quite mainstream, really. I mean, I don't know whether it was just a reflection of uh, quite a good period for rock music in general, but more latterly, Bob, you seem to be um, playing, you know, Americana, Nashville. You have a specialist show um, on a Thursday, um, Bob Harris Country. Now, was this interest, this musical interest, always present, even in the, the early, sort of like the late 60s, 70s, when you were growing up with music? Or is this something to do with mellowing with age? <laughs> uh, no, it was uh, very much there right from the start. I mean... Um, You've suppressed it all these years. <laughs> yeah, well, the early 70s then was the arrival or it, 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 people like the birds, sweethearts of the radio, people like Bob Dylan and Johnny Cash with National Skyline, um, the Dillards, Dillard and Clark, Flying Burrito Brothers, you know, the, in a sense that country rock genre had already begun to establish itself. And then uh, by the time I started on Whistle Test, you know, Poco, the Eagles, New Riders of the Purple's Age, Emmy Lou Harris began then to emerge as a solo artist in her own right. Um, uh, you know, Sleep at the Wheel, Hot Tuna. I mean, and then you look at the work of artists like Neil Young, Grateful Dead. There's so much country in everything they're doing as well. So that was a very important part of the spectrum, the, the music spectrum that we were featuring on Whistle Test at the time. So you spin the clock on 30 years or whatever, and I've now been at Radio 2 for a couple of years. And at the beginning of 1999, Radio 2 asked me if I'd like to take over the country show. I'd never really thought to head in that direction and do a specialist show like that before. But the minute they and I sat down and started talking about it, it just all fell into place. It seemed to me to make perfect sense. And... um, uh, through that then I went over to Nashville for the first time to discover that I'd landed in, in, in my spiritual home I mean I just it was immediately just felt so comfortable and loved it there so when you think that the Nashville is very much the home of the song it, it, it really is when you think of the sort of instrumentation of a lot of the country acts you think of the Eagles and draw a straight line from them or Poco and draw a straight line and and you find yourself right in the middle of where I am right now. The East Nashville community, people like uh, Todd Snyder, Steve Earle, Elizabeth Cook, Lucinda Williams. If we were doing Whistle Test now, they would be on the program. Mm. So it's, it, it, to me, there's a complete sort of logic as to where I find myself now. The thing about, you know, the comparison, obviously then Radio 1, the overnights, that, that was regarded as a strip show. We were on four nights a week, uh, 16 hours, you know, a week. So 
we had to be mindful that we couldn't go absolutely let the program drift to left of center. That's got the week underway. Bad Medicine, that's Bon Jovi from the New Jersey RP. And before that, Rocking Chair from Magnum from their album Good Night LA. And good morning to you. 12 minutes past 12 o'clock is the time. Radio 1 FM. Welcome along to the program. It's Bob Harris with you until 4 o'clock with music like this. But even there, I was featuring sessions by... Raymond Patton, Mary Chapin Carpenter, Sean Colvin, uh, Susie Boggess, and people like this. But now, with, uh, I mean, having two, as it were, specialist shows that aren't in any way under any pressure whatsoever to adhere to any kind of playlist, I can allow myself to sort of drift into whatever territory I want to. And I find myself, you know, probably more comfortable now with the music than I, uh, I'm playing than I ever have been. I mean, I've always chosen my own tracks. I've always put in all my own music into all my own shows. But now I, I, I've, I've really got the absolute freedom to let the programs drift wherever I want them to, and it's, it's a fantastic feeling. This is marvellous, actually, because I know, you know, I mean, again, reading your, and I do recommend that to listeners, actually, your autobiography, The Whispering Years, which really is, is a fascinating read, not least for the period when, um, after you'd left the, the whistle test and, you know, bringing bring the story pretty much up to date, really. But uh, it's interesting to hear you say that, Bob, that you, you do feel perhaps the most relaxed you've ever felt because it's, uh, it has been a sort of bit of a roller coaster ride, hasn't it, in some ways? Um, well, the last 30 years have been fantastic. I mean, since yeah. I went back to Radio 1 in 1990, I mean, it's funny, actually, because the last uh, whistle test I did was on New Year's Eve 1979. And the first regular program I did back at Radio 1 was on the 5th of January, uh, 1990. So, I mean, almost to the day, the 80s were, became a sort of lost decade. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. I mean, I, it's not to say I wasn't having a nice time. I was on Radio Oxford for a while. I did work at LBC. Uh, my wife at the time was, was part Italian, half Italian, and we spent a lot of time in Italy, which I... I mean, I love Italy. It's a beautiful country. And so, but then once I found myself back on Radio 1, yes, then we all lost our jobs at the end of 1993. But even that, in a funny sort of way, proved to be a blessing in itself because then I found myself on GLR in London, which uh, I was on GLR for three years, sort of the London equivalent of what six music. I mean, there was a strong parallel between the two stations, actually. I loved it at GLR. It was wonderful, and um, I was doing evening shows there, and that's one of the happiest times of my entire life. And then Jim Moyer got in touch and invited me to join Radio 2, um, and I've been at Radio 2 since 1997, and now I, I love it at Radio 2. You know, I really love what I'm doing. I feel very fortunate to be doing for a living, having maintained this throughout the last 40 years doing something I really love you know mm. I think maybe the message is like you know stick to your guns isn't it I mean that's the theme that comes through I think when you look at your you know the, the events in your career that you, you, you've this honest direct approach and a real a genuine real enthusiasm and you know you're a collector and you're just immersed in music and you, you've stuck to that um, whole ethos haven't you really and you, you've not really wavered from that I think that's probably a key part of your 
wider success really and, and I think why Bob actually you're admired for that because you are the genuine article you know you haven't compromised really well one thing Robert says he uses the word consistent and I think that's that's probably right I'm very proud about that I mean yeah. you can you can draw a straight line directly from what I was doing on that very first program I did in August 1970 for Radio 1 to what I'm doing now I mean really it's it, the same process is applied. I'm listening to music in much the same way. I build my programs. You know, you, this this conversation now. I mean, I'm sitting at my desk in my studio uh, with all my CDs around me. I'm right in the process of building tomorrow's country show. I'm listening to whatever I got in front of me. Uh, AJ Downing um, and the Buick Six. That's a very good album. Somebody's just sent me a copy of an album by Dawson Rains, uh, self-released. It's called Enjoy the Ride. I'm also programming tomorrow a track from Roseanne Cash from the list because she's coming over to uh, play the stage in Gateshead scene. I've got Elizabeth Cook in session, um, and she's going to be on my stage at Truckfest later this month. So, yeah, I mean, Marvelous. exactly the same process applies. Yes, and the same enthusiasm. Get ready to rock radio, music you want to hear. And finally, Bob, um, talking about your days uh, as uh, you know, one of the, the premier rock broadcasters, can we finish with your thoughts and any recollections on three of those broadcasters who sadly aren't with us now, Tommy Vance, John Peel, and Alan Fluff Freeman. I mean, three great names, great voices from the past, and, and you've you know, rubbed shoulders, you've worked with them three um, broadcasters who um, have really blazed the trail for rock music along with yourself since the early 70s. There are two other names I'll add to that as well, actually. Yes. Uh, Alan Black. Um, dear Alan, I used to co-present um, the Sounds of the Seventies Sounds of the program with Alan. He yes. passed away a couple of years ago. And Bernie Andrews, a producer at the BBC who, with Jeff Griffin, was one of the real... Cutting edge producers. I mean, Bernie worked with John on Top Gear. Bernie passed away just recently. I went to his funeral last Thursday, and Bernie was a character, an absolute, well, huge supporter of, of left field, if you like. So, you know, I'd add those two to the list as well. But, I mean, John was such an inspiration. I mean, it was listening to the Perfume Garden on Radio London that made me realize that I could. I could realize the ambition that I had to, to do this. Um, he was incredibly supportive to me, helped me establish myself at Radio 1. And, I mean, I, he was incredible, the support that he gave me. So, um, Fluff, well, Alan Freeman, I mean, Alan was such a character. He and I became good friends, too. And um, I, think, I said to him several times that he ought to write a book because... You know, his experiences in broadcasting Radio Luxembourg and then the early days of the light program, Pick of the Pops. I mean, he was he was a fantastic supporter of rock. And, of course, Tommy, well, I mean, Tommy was the rock, you know, rock music voice, wasn't he, in this mm. country? And was so respected. So, yeah, I mean, all three of them. I did, of the three, I, I probably let, knew Tommy Vance less well. Uh, but John and I were very, very close, particularly through the late 60s, early 70s. I mean, the first time that I met John was also the first time I met Mark Bowen, and I, this was in 67. And um, I, at that moment, it established then a very close friendship with both of them that continued right through the years. 
But really, you know, it's been great talking to you, um, specifically, of course, about this release and this new series, but uh, catching up on some, you know, there's so much there, isn't there, over a marvellous career, Bob. So thanks for that. Thanks for your time. And uh, we look forward to the next instalment of the uh, Old Grey Whistle Test out on Rhino Records. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Dave. Thanks, Bob.